We continue with the opinion of the court in Students for Fair Admissions, Inc., the President and Fellows of Harvard College. Beginning with Part 3 of the Opinion. Part 3. Section A. In the wake of the Civil War, Congress proposed and the states ratified the 14th Amendment, providing that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. To its proponents, the Equal Protection Clause represented a foundational principle, the absolute equality of all citizens of the United States, politically and civilly, before their own laws. The Constitution, they were determined, should not permit any distinctions of law based on race or color, because any law which operates upon one man should operate equally upon all. As soon-to-be President James Garfield observed, the 14th Amendment would hold over every American citizen, without regard to color, the protecting shield of law. And in doing so, said Senator Jacob Howard of Michigan, the amendment would give to the humblest, the poorest, the most despised of the race, the same rights and the same protection before the law as it gives to the most powerful, the most wealthy, or the most haughty. For without this principle of equal justice, Howard continued, there is no Republican government and none that is really worth maintaining. At first, this court embraced the transcendent aims of the Equal Protection Clause. What is this, we said of the clause in 1880, but declaring that the law in the states shall be the same for the black as for the white, that all persons, whether colored or white, shall stand equal before the laws of the states. The broad and benign provisions of the 14th Amendment apply to all persons, we unanimously declared six years later. It is hostility to race and nationality which, in the eye of the law, is not justified. Despite our early recognition of the broad sweep of the Equal Protection Clause, this court, alongside the country, quickly failed to live up to the clause's core commitments. For almost a century after the Civil War, state-mandated segregation was in many parts of the nation a regrettable norm. This court played its own role in that ignoble history, allowing in Plessy v. Ferguson the separate but equal regime that would come to deface much of America. The aspirations of the framers of the Equal Protection Clause, virtually strangled in their infancy, would remain for too long only that, aspirations. After Plessy, American courts labored with the doctrine of separate but equal for over half a century. Some cases in this period attempted to curtail the perniciousness of the doctrine by emphasizing that it required states to provide black students educational opportunities equal to, even if formally separate from, those enjoyed by white students. But the inherent folly of that approach, of trying to derive equality from inequality, soon became apparent. As the court subsequently recognized, even racial distinctions that were argued to have no palpable effect worked to subordinate the afflicted students. 
The culmination of this approach came finally in Brown v. Board of Education. In that seminal decision, we overturned Plessy for good and set firmly on the path of invalidating all de jure racial discrimination by the states and federal government. Brown concerned the permissibility of racial segregation in public schools. The school district maintained that such segregation was lawful because the schools provided to black students and white students were of roughly the same quality. But we held such segregation impermissible even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal. The mere act of separating children because of their race, we explained, itself generated a feeling of inferiority. The conclusion reached by the Brown Court was thus unmistakably clear. The right to a public education must be made available to all on equal terms. As the plaintiffs had argued, no state has any authority under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to use race as a factor in affording educational opportunities among its citizens. The court reiterated that rule just one year later, holding that full compliance with Brown required schools to admit students on a racially non-discriminatory basis. The time for making distinctions based on race had passed. Brown, the court observed, declared the fundamental principle that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional. So, too, in other areas of life. Immediately after Brown, we began routinely affirming lower court decisions that invalidated all manner of race-based state action. In Gale v. Browder, for example, we summarily affirmed a decision invalidating state and local laws that required segregation in busing. As the lower court explained, the Equal Protection Clause requires equality of treatment before the law for all persons without regard to race or color. And in Mayor and City Council of Baltimore v. Dawson, we summarily affirmed a decision striking down racial segregation at public beaches and bathhouses maintained by the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore. It is obvious that racial segregation in recreational activities can no longer be sustained, the lower court observed. The ideal of equality before the law which characterizes our institutions demanded as much. In the decades that followed, this court continued to vindicate the Constitution's pledge of racial equality. Laws dividing parks and golf courses, neighborhoods and businesses, buses and trains, schools and juries were undone, all by a transformative promise stemming from our American ideal of fairness. The Constitution forbids discrimination by the general government or by the states against any citizen because of his race. As we recounted in striking down the state of Virginia's ban on interracial marriage 13 years after Brown, the 14th Amendment proscribes all invidious racial discriminations. Our cases had thus consistently denied the constitutionality of measures which restrict the rights of citizens on account of race. These decisions reflect the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause, 
doing away with all governmentally imposed discrimination based on race. We have recognized that repeatedly. The clear and central purpose of the 14th Amendment was to eliminate all official state sources of invidious racial discrimination in the states. Eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it, and the Equal Protection Clause we have accordingly held applies without regard to any differences of race, of color, or of nationality. It is universal in its application. For the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal. Any exception to the Constitution's demand for equal protection must survive a daunting two-step examination known in our cases as strict scrutiny. Under that standard, we ask first whether the racial classification is used to further compelling governmental interests. Second, if so, we ask whether the government's use of race is narrowly tailored, meaning necessary, to achieve that interest. Outside the circumstances of these cases, our precedents have identified only two compelling interests that permit resort to race-based government action. One is remediating specific identified instances of past discrimination that violated the Constitution or statute. The second is avoiding imminent and serious risks to human safety in prisons, such as a race riot. Our acceptance of race-based state action has been rare for a reason. Distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are, by their very nature, odious to a free people whose institutions are founded upon the doctrine of equality. That principle cannot be overridden except in the most extraordinary case. Section B. These cases involve whether a university may make admissions decisions that turn on an applicant's race. Our court first considered that issue in Regents of University of California v. Bakke, which involved a set-aside admissions program used by the University of California Davis Medical School. Each year, the school held 16 of its 100 seats open for members of certain minority groups, who were reviewed on a special admissions track separate from those in the main admissions pool. The plaintiff, Alan Bakke, was denied admission two years in a row despite the admission of minority applicants with lower grade point averages and MCAT scores. Bakke subsequently sued the school, arguing that its set-aside program violated the Equal Protection Clause. In a deeply splintered decision that produced six different opinions, none of which commanded a majority of the court, we ultimately ruled in part in favor of the school and in part in favor of Bakke. Justice Powell announced the court's judgment and his opinion, though written for himself alone, would eventually come to serve as the touchstone for constitutional analysis of race-conscious admissions policies. Justice Powell began by finding three of the school's four justifications for its policy not sufficiently compelling. 
the school's first justification of reducing the historic deficit of traditionally disfavored minorities in medical schools, he wrote, was akin to preferring members of any one group for no reason other than race or ethnic origin. Yet that was discrimination for its own sake, which the Constitution forbids. Justice Powell next observed that the goal of remedying the effects of societal discrimination was also insufficient because it was an amorphous concept of injury that may be ageless in its reach into the past. Finally, Justice Powell found there was virtually no evidence in the record indicating that the school's special admissions program would, as the school had argued, increase the number of doctors working in underserved areas. Justice Powell then turned to the school's last interest asserted to be compelling, obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a racially diverse student body. That interest, in his view, was a constitutionally permissible goal for an institution of higher education. And that was so, he opined, because a university was entitled as a matter of academic freedom to make its own judgments as to the selection of its student body. But a university's freedom was not unlimited. Racial and ethnic distinctions of any sort are inherently suspect, Justice Powell explained, and antipathy toward them was deeply rooted in our nation's constitutional and demographic history. A university could not employ a quota system, for example, reserving a specified number of seats in each class for individuals from the preferred ethnic groups. Nor could it impose a multi-track program with a prescribed number of seats set aside for each identifiable category of applicants. And neither still could it use race to foreclose an individual from all consideration simply because he was not the right color. The role of race had to be cabined. It could operate only as a plus in a particular applicant's file. And even then, race was to be weighed in a manner flexible enough to consider all pertinent elements of diversity in light of the particular qualifications of each applicant. Justice Powell derived this approach from what he called the illuminating example of the admission system then used by Harvard College. Under that system, as described by Harvard in a brief it had filed with the court, the race of an applicant may tip the balance in his favor just as geographic origin or a life experience may tip the balance in other candidates' cases. Harvard continued, A farm boy from Idaho can bring something to Harvard College that a Bostonian cannot offer. Similarly, a black student can usually bring something that a white person cannot offer. The result, Harvard proclaimed, was that race has been, and should be, a factor in some admission decisions. No other member of the court joined Justice Powell's opinion. Four justices instead would have held that the government may use race for the purpose of remedying the effects of past societal discrimination. Four other justices, meanwhile, would have struck down the Davis program as violative of Title VI. 
In their view, it seemed clear that the proponents of Title VI assumed that the Constitution itself required a colorblind standard on the part of government. The Davis program therefore flatly contravened a core principle embedded in the constitutional and moral understanding of the times, the prohibition against racial discrimination. Section C. In the years that followed our fractured decision in Baki, lower courts struggled to discern whether Justice Powell's opinion constituted binding precedent. We accordingly took up the matter again in 2003 in the case Gruder v. Bollinger, which concerned the admission system used by the University of Michigan Law School. There, in another sharply divided decision, the court for the first time endorsed Justice Powell's view that student body diversity is a compelling state interest that can justify the use of race in university admissions. The court's analysis tracked Justice Powell's in many respects. As for compelling interest, the court held that the law school's educational judgment that such diversity is essential to its educational mission is one to which we defer. In achieving that goal, however, the court made clear, just as Justice Powell had, that the law school was limited in the means that it could pursue. The school could not establish quotas for members of certain racial groups or put members of those groups on separate admissions tracks. Neither could it insulate applicants who belong to certain racial or ethnic groups from the competition for admission. Nor still could it desire some specified percentage of a particular group merely because of its race or ethnic origin. These limits, Gruder explained, were intended to guard against two dangers that all race-based government action portends. The first is the risk that the use of race will devolve into illegitimate stereotyping. Universities were thus not permitted to operate their admissions programs on the belief that minority students always, or even consistently, express some characteristic minority viewpoint on any issue. The second risk is that race would be used not as a plus, but as a negative, to discriminate against those racial groups that were not the beneficiaries of the race-based preference. A university's use of race, accordingly, could not occur in a manner that unduly harmed non-minority applicants. But even with these constraints in place, Gruder expressed marked discomfort with the use of race in college admissions. The court stressed the fundamental principle that there are serious problems of justice connected with the idea of racial preference itself. It observed that all racial classifications, however compelling their goals, were dangerous. And it cautioned that all race-based governmental action should remain subject to continuing oversight to assure that it will work the least harm possible to other innocent persons competing for the benefit. To manage these concerns, Gruder imposed one final limit on race-based admissions programs. At some point, the court held, they must end. This requirement was critical, 
and Grutter emphasized it repeatedly. All race-conscious admissions programs must have a termination point. They must have reasonable durational limits. They must be limited in time. They must have sunset provisions. They must have a logical end point. Their deviation from the norm of equal treatment must be a temporary matter. The importance of an end point was not just a matter of repetition. It was the reason the court was willing to dispense temporarily with the Constitution's unanimous guarantee of equal protection. The court recognized as much. Enshrining a permanent justification for racial preferences, the court explained, would offend this fundamental equal protection principle. Gruder thus concluded with the following caution. It has been 25 years since Justice Powell first approved the use of race to further an interest in student body diversity in the context of public higher education. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest approved today. This opinion has been divided into multiple parts, and you've just come to the end of the second. Now, I know this is a very important case, and a lot of people want to hear it, so I'm going to do my very best to get the rest of it read for you guys as soon as I can. Hopefully, by tomorrow, you'll have the rest of it. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us. <laughs>